Hello, I'm James Fitzsimons and welcome to The Career Scoop, a podcast all about career progression, advice and experiences aimed at assisting those who are in career transition. Today, my guest is Ryan McGuinness. Ryan was born in Greenwich and grew up in Westport, Connecticut. He attended chemical and biological studies at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. He became interested in winemaking, which led him to become a sommelier. He discovered his passion for wine after numerous trips to Napa Valley, specifically the Spring Mountain AVA located just north of St. Helena. He worked extensively with producers on Spring Mountain, but most closely with Kane Vineyards. Upon returning to New York City, he began studying at the International Culinary Centre for his Court of Master Sommelier Certified Level Accreditation. After completing that course, and receiving the Walter Clore Scholar Award, he began work at Bethany, a three-star Michelin restaurant in New York, where his career progressed as a sommelier. He then moved on to be head sommelier of the Four Seasons restaurant. Then, by chance, he met the owners of the Mercantile Group Hospitality from Ireland and was offered a job and then moved to Dublin. His sommelier careers continues to progress at Café en Seine, located in Dublin. Ryan, you're very welcome to the show. So so tell me about, I, I know, as I said, we met, uh, I, I was in Café en Seine having a fabulous meal. You minded us, and then you started yeah. to share your story that uh, I think there might be a lady involved, that you met somebody, uh, and you, yeah. came to, you came to Dublin, and then it all. So bring us back to, I mean, obviously you're a Somalier. That's your, that's yeah. your, that, that's what really provoked my interest, and you're, your simple knowledge about wines and how you're able to bring me through it, but might bring your little your, your your how you got into become a sommelier and then your journey to Dublin. Sure, um, I mean it, it starts way back in in university for me. Uh, I was I was a chemist by by study at least, and they don't always tell you in university that there's more than just hard pharmaceuticals to go into as a chemistry major. So I. After school, I, I went looking around for alternative applications of chemistry, and I really found that I had this passion for for winemaking, just simply through, you know, working summer jobs in, in restaurants, as you know any good twenty two year old would do in coastal Connecticut. So, uh, my dad and I took a couple trips out to Napa, California, kind of fell in love with with viticulture and viniculture, and just the whole process of creating wine. You know, that led me back to New York, where on a chance, I took a class at uh, the International Culinary Center, the intensive sommelier program, and wound up working in fine dining in New York uh, as a working sommelier. And, you know, that was truly an experience uh, I had never had before, you know, not exactly a whole lot of training in it, but um, a really immersive way of, of entering the business. So then ended heading back out to California and making wine with cane vineyards in Spring Mountain, which is, if you ever have time to go, just a, a truly lovely part of piece of the world. And it's about as high up as you can get. It's on top of the mountain in Spring Mountain in Napa. And then came back and to New York after a little while out there. Took up the Four Seasons wine director position. And at the time, met my now lovely wife, who was in New York City uh, on on a on her classic J1 visa there. And uh, next thing you know, here I am uh, working at working with Mercantile Group, specifically in Cafe and Sen, and happily married in Dublin. 
Wow, that, that's a great story. So, sommelier, lots of questions come into play yeah. as a do. So, back to, I know you worked in a, um, that restaurant, obviously a Michelin star, three, Mich- Mich- three Michelin stars in that restaurant in, in yeah. New York uh, called, so I'm just looking for it here. Oh, Madison Park. Uh, Bethany, Bethany, is that it, Cheryl? Yeah. Uh, and so, again, quick, kind of kind of a crude question. Sorry, but the most expensive bottle of wine in that restaurant that you sold and why? And how did you, what was the questions around it? Uh, the most expensive that I personally let go of was $16,000. And it was 1999, sorry, um, Screaming Eagle, which is a cold Cabernet produced in Rutherford. Um, the story behind that one, that when you get to prices that high, that's more point and click, as we like to call it. Uh, there's not a whole lot of selling that goes in there. Uh, you know, your average, you know, date night or, you know, group before coming in before a show that have notions of, having a couple of bottles aren't exactly being upsold from a hundred dollars to 16,000. That was more just a special client. That's what they chose to drink. That's what they always drink. So we accommodated that request. I think the real role and, and direct translation of the term sommelier is wine waiter. And our role is not so much to bring you from a low number to the highest possible number, but more so to find out exactly what you want to drink how it best suits your meal, what are your likes, what are your dislikes, aggregating that information in real time, and then providing you with a slew of options that you are going to like without us having to debate or haggle or negotiate so much. It's it's more easing what generally can be a very awkward experience and doing it with a bit of humility. So you're kind of a translator. A hundred percent. I mean, most of what you learn in sommelier training in school is is giving you a vocabulary in order to talk about something that's quite obscure naturally, or quite niche rather. And I suppose you're you're figuring out at what level of knowledge uh, your client or pres- has yeah. in front of you, and trying to frame it in in where they feel comfortable language wise and bring them, teach them a little bit on the way, you know, and like, I'd like that. But if you had this bit of wine, I think judge by what you're saying that, and what are the kind of, what like there's all this, all this lovely lingo around uh, in wine, but what's the simple stuff, you know, obviously what you like and what, what are the words, where'd you yeah. start off with somebody who, who, uh, you know, what do you like and what's the kind of, uh, I'm curious. Sure. So I always, I'm always interested in, in, in a more casual scenario, it's like, what, what do you like to drink at home? Because I want to know that's generally where your comfort lies, right? So given that baseline, I can then take you to something that's familiar that you may not say on your Tuesday night, just gamble on at the supermarket or off license. And instead, I'll take you to somewhere that is not going to cost you much more, but you'll have a new experience with. So you generally say what do you like to drink normally? If they don't like to drink, say it's someone's first time drinking wine. Um, do you like more fruity flavors? Do you like more earthy or like stony flavors? Do you like something that's quite giving and, and like full bodied, which would mean a bit heavier on the palate, generally speaking, a bit more alcohol, or do you like something lighter body, which is lower in alcohol and a bit more racy and thin on the palate? It's trying to gauge exactly what sensory information the guest would have 
from a couple of keywords that maybe at the time they, they've heard, but they don't know what they mean. Whereas it's our job to know what they mean and, and, and find something that they're going to enjoy drinking. And you learn that about by tasting, I presume. And, you know, in your job, you must taste gazillions bottles of wine. I'm sure. definitely one of and the highlights. And, <laughs> and, and, and you spit it out, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, sorry, sorry. that's where I'm most happy. of us might might fail as sommeliers. We forget to spit it out. But yeah. on, a, on a serious note, I presume then you, is there a reference point that goes up and goes up into your head? That's that. And here's a lingo, depending on from experience the client in front of me that I use for that client to represent that taste. Yeah. So one of my early mentors, Scott Carney, he's a master sommelier based in New York city and um, his legacy of a career. And he says that like tasting and your ability to taste wine is mostly derived from your theory, your knowledge of, of the varietals, the regions that produce those wines, the, the stories of the producers themselves and knowing how they choose to make wine. And it's that compilation that allows you to be able to taste things in the glass. So if you don't know, you know, that Sauvignon Blanc produced in the Loire Valley in Sancerre is generally speaking a very highly acidic, very lime focused wine. Uh, it'd be very hard to pick that wine out of a lineup blind. Uh, so it's, it's the study and the knowledge that goes in, behind the scenes that really informs your ability to identify, speak about eloquently and, and provide um, like a, a lovely service to a customer or a guest, I'd say. Wow. It's kind of a special thing when you get it right and you see that client. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like um, it, it's, it, that's the point of it all. I'd say like anyone, I guess nowadays, even more so, could hand you an iPad that's loaded up with all the information that I could not regurgitate to you in any timely manner, especially in the context of a dining experience. So I think our job and why it's still beautiful in a sense is that it is that give and take, it's that fluid education of a guest and also that that feeling you get as a guest speaking to someone that's there basically to make sure you enjoy your wine drinking experience to the utmost level. And for that 23-year-old who maybe are 21-year-old studying in hospitality, what what would you what would you advise them if they said, God, I want to be a sommelier, I want to specialize in that space? What's the journey to get there to see? Sure. Uh, can they do it? Uh, why mightn't they do it? You know, just what's the pluses and minuses for them to make that call? Generally, there's two, there's two routes. One is the book the bookworm route, as we like to call it where you bury your head into the textbooks and the maps and and you study your way through what is at times quite dense. I mean, the master sommelier exam is in five, now six different languages. Um, and unless you're a naturally gifted learner of language, um, I found it quite hard, which I am not. So um, I found the route of constantly putting yourself into scenarios of experiencing new wine in new regions travel is a is a great is a great way of accomplishing that now i know at 21 22 traveling and not working is is a more difficult prospect to, to most uh which is why becoming a sommelier is such a wonderful career path because the, the number of scholarships and internships and externships available uh for most of these wineries and regions 
we'll we'll bring you over and give you firsthand experience at no cost and host you for a month in Rioja or down in Tarasi in southern Italy uh, just to further expand that region's influence of wine in the in the marketplace and where where have you uh, on your journey uh, what's, what, what, did you want to give us a kind of an overview in the world where you've had a where, where you've had uh, the opportunity and and you're I presume you're working I do this when you're uh, when, when you when you're doing of course I I mean serious you know but you're there to learn I mean this is this is this absolutely. is on the job I mean I've picked I've picked my fair share of grapes I wouldn't say I'm the best grape picker in the world you know I tend to enjoy the final product more than the initial product. Um, but I've I was I was lucky enough, obviously, to have my time in Napa and Sonoma as well, which is just on the other side of Spring Mountain. Um, I've had experiences in Rioja, uh, which was truly a great experience. A lot more eating and drinking than than grape picking there, in my experience. Um, I've had chances to go to Australia and pick in Clarenvale. I've had chances to tour uh, the southern vine- vineyards of Italy. I've had chances to explore vineyards in Thailand as well, um, which now I wouldn't say they're on the forefront of international wine production, but wine is truly the the study of where people have gone in the world. If you if you follow history, even from its earliest times, the Romans expanded wine over what is all of Western Europe now, and that's how wine is. Why it's such a big deal in France? I mean. The oldest vineyard planted in France at the moment is La Romane, which was planted by the Romans as they marched through Gaul and is still a single vineyard that's walled by stone walls created by the Romans. So you can see if you're at all a fan of history, then wine should be well within your wheelhouse as well. Wow. That's that's really because uh, people don't necessarily realize that they hear again, they hear Somalia, they hear wine and people say, oh, that's exclusive. That's this, that's that. I the the privilege in in the summer to pick grapes or in September to pick grapes in Arezzo which yeah. is in the middle of the middle of Italy we happened to uh, fall upon and stay in a place that wasn't uh, a working uh, vineyard and they said do you want to come out and pick grapes which was a I'd never done it it was a a, a, a fabulous experience can you compare contrast a little little twists and changes between you talked about Spain you've talked about Italy you've talked about the southern hemisphere you've talked about France just to share with our listeners well, the little twist that you've noticed, or, or the, the, the maybe local, local stuff that, that yeah, I think um, if I was talking to someone that was interested in becoming a sommelier, uh, you always start with the king, and the king would be France, right? They set the rules. So uh, whenever when I began my studies, the first country you really get under your belt and you know well is France, because everyone in what we call the old world, the 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 Western Europe countries, um, they all follow pretty much the same rules that France does. They they name their wines by the place that they came from, not the grapes that go in it. They have designation of quality levels based on the size of the vineyard and access to that vineyard. Whereas in what we call the New World, which would be the Americas, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, unfortunately, even though their wine culture predates the colonization of America, um, we tend to, in the new world, and I include myself in this, label our wines by the grape that goes into it, or the blend, or we name the wines. Simply because, at the time, 
we were all start we were all growing grapes at the same time we had all just started so it was hard to say that you know this one place grew a better wine than the other when we had planted at the same time so that that's the main difference that that you see in those two camps the old versus the new world now the difference between french italian and spanish wine is uh that's a personal question. I may get in a bit of trouble for commenting on that. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Um, well, more their little is their little identities that you know. Sure. Oh, they do that this way. Maybe rather than before we cause a, a diplomatic incident yeah. in, in the wine community, because I know, like, and I know this little, like, for example, in this place in Arezzo, their biggest issue was frost, but also there was yeah. wild boars, uh, and yeah. wild boars are that you wouldn't eat buckets of grapes and it's it's it can decimate uh, definitely. Uh, definitely doesn't help your yield at the end of the season yeah. um i'd say so you can see small attitudes in wine and also historical influence so uh during the spanish civil war um all the wineries in rioja were monastic they were all based around the church so uh that oppression there they forced all their wines behind Essentially, they just walled them in, all their cellars, so they wouldn't be found. And that's why still to this day, you can see deep, deep back vintage wines, old wines that are still available from Rioja, because the access to the cellars is, is only fairly recent. You see the French essentially use a very specific type of oak, um, the, the French limousine oak, to create their, their barrels. Whereas the Spanish, by contrast, couldn't afford that oak because it was too expensive. So they tended to import American oak. Now that may seem like, oh, these two trees of the same genus, or spe species rather, not same genus, are are so similar. Well, the influence that it has on the wine is, is markedly different. I mean, people drink Rioja specifically for the way it tastes, but a lot of that taste is the American oak influence. You see the Italians, which rarely use any of that. They choose to use these very large 5,000 liter boti, which is based off of Slovenian oak, which has no wood influence, none of those woody kind of oaky flavors. And because the, the barrels themselves are so large, it's why you typically see young Italian wines being so harsh and unpleasant to drink. Uh, they need more time to relax. Also why Italian wine goes so well with food, it needs a pairing. It's not generally speaking, a very enjoyable style of wine to drink on its own. Now, I'm sure I'll get a bit of flack for saying that, but it is the the commonly accepted theory behind Italian wine, so to speak. Uh, uh, gosh, uh, you've just now, well, uh, you know, I, and I wouldn't disagree with what, what you've said there, in a sense, my own um, uh, basic understanding. Um, Going back to kind of a younger person, because part of part of the podcast is to, to share like your career journey and other people's career journey. That that twenty two year old. I mean, you're you're obviously part of your job and Cafe Ansen is that you're uh, you're hiring people as well. You're recruiting people. What do you look for? What makes? When do you know? Yeah, that's the person I want. And yeah. what, what do they use? What's the qualities? Uh, and then can people if they don't have it? Can they? Can they? Can they learn it? Can they work in it? Yeah, I think. I think the most important quality in in any hospitality setting is your interpersonal skill. Is are you are you ready? Are you willing to be adaptable in in your daily minute to minute job? Um, 
I think that's a that's a requirement. I don't know if if that's a learned skill necessarily. I think that has to be inherent to you. Do you want to actively engage with public opinion, public like complaint? Do you want to do you derive joy from seeing other people happy? I think that is something that is inherent to you. Um learn traits like the willingness to learn new skills is also incredibly in, important when hiring for hospitality uh that that willingness to have an open mind to okay i may not have done this prior in my career or i don't exactly know how to do that but i'm i'm ready to learn this way of doing it i think restaurants are truly a manifestation of of singular ideas and when other outside influences start diluting those ideas, then you start diluting the brand of the restaurant itself. So you need to maintain that diligence of the way that we do it here is this way. Of course, we will always hear outside opinion, but just because you used to do something another way in a different restaurant, that's fine. The way that we do it here is this way. And, and it's that willingness to open your mind to, to learning new things uh, that is crucial in hiring i think how about education from the point of view of people having certificates there's some people who they're just not good at the kind of third level stuff they just about got through second level um is that important or you know like for, for people who have the gift of strong emotional intelligence they're really good with people they can learn you know they're able to assume or, or you know understand the kind of they're getting across the basic a good communication around food choices and maybe obviously a little bit about wine or drinks and making that that a comfortable environment for that that two to three to five five people group who are saying cafe on sand yeah i think um certificates are they're necessary these days i think beforehand it was it, like I think just the generation before mine in terms of like the hospitality generation uh, certificates weren't as necessary people got people were given a job they showed their they excelled and they learned through their trade whereas now the the competition in the market for these higher level positions these sommelier positions these wine director positions beverage director service director uh there's more competition for them so it's much like going to school in America you have to pad your pad your stats a little bit and add more things to your resume to, to stand out from the pack. Um, I know it personally, like when I went through my schooling there, that, that certificate, that, you know, top scorer in the wine exam in New York city definitely allowed me direct access to the job that kickstarted my career. I don't know if I would have gotten that job without that certificate. And did your initial uh, chemistry uh, training experience, did that help you a little bit? Because obviously wine is all about ingredients. Yeah, it definitely takes away some of the uh, some of the fear when reading winemaking textbooks. You know, the terms are more familiar. And I think that's just, just answers the question there of like the more you know, the more it can help you. Um, now, I'm not saying to 22 year olds, go back and get a chemistry degree. You did it wrong. I'm, I'm saying more so like, be prepared to, to that. It's not just, are you the fastest opening a bottle of wine? Do the customers and guests like you the most? No, like 
all of your greatness comes from the theory and the information that you have that supports those higher level abilities. Okay. Changing tack a little bit there, and it follows, I think it follows mistakes you've made uh, and, and the funny stories. I don't think that this podcast would be long enough to recount all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, that's a, it's a really interesting point. And I was happy that you asked that because that's how you learn in this business is, is you learn through your failures and you learn through your mistakes uh, because those are the real teaching moments and because they happen so frequently in a dining service setting. Um, I think the one that my friends from back home would still, still remember uh, on an almost a daily basis, it feels like uh, we had a, a lovely table of four gentlemen that ordered a bottle of wine and clocked in just under $6,000. Uh, so sure, I serve the wine, I turn around, I give the big thumbs up to everyone, ha ha, did it. Well, I was serving their food and while speaking to them, uh, one of the pieces of food slid from the plate and took a nosedive square into the glass of wine. Now, 6,000 per glass, you, you know, you're still looking at a three-figure value for a glass of wine there. Um, luckily, that person whose glass it was uh, didn't skip a beat, took the food out, ate the food, said that it was better seasoned now. So I got away with that one, uh, luckily. But it taught me a very specific lesson that as important as multitasking is, being intently focused on each motion while executing a certain job is is important. So I lost focus for half a second and my hand twitched and there you go. That could have been a $6,000 mistake. What would have happened? Did they say take it back and then you've yeah, given yeah. your money? So that's, that's a $6,000 write-off and who, pay, who pays for that? Uh, unfortunately, that's a, that's a cost that the restaurant would have to eat. The house would have to eat that one. Yeah. Wow. Hard to explain to your boss. Gosh. Okay. And that's what they wouldn't be best pleased, maybe. No. Um, they're like for other things, you know, I get this question quite often. Uh, you know, what happens if I send the wine back? Well, you know, our job is not to scold the customer. Our job is not to correct the guest. Uh, our job is, is to make sure that your experience is, is memorable, is pleasurable. Uh, is exciting uh, you feel challenged to go out of your comfort zone just a little bit and so sending wine back is is simply like it, it, it doesn't offend us in most scenarios yeah i think it's a worthy thing to say like no if i am paying for this and i should enjoy it and at the moment I, it's not what i thought it was it's not uh it, it doesn't provide that next level of enjoyment for me so i always i'm, I'm quite are you sure you like it, my guests? <laughs> like, to, but I'm sure you. I'm, I'm sure you know the Irish thing. It's fine. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. You know. Sometimes we don't. We bitch about it later. You know. And instead of saying, "Actually, no, it actually doesn't taste very well," or you know, that that sort of a thing. I think that's maybe 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 it's changed. Maybe it's my generation. Uh, we're we're not great. Sorry, we're not great open complainers, but we're very good, probably private complainers. Uh. Well, I hope like I, I hope to encourage a bit more of that because that's more of a conversation. Like we're we're advancing the conversation farther. We're I'm getting to understand what at a personal level what my guest enjoys and doesn't enjoy. I always encourage guests to have a taste of something. As much as I can talk to you about your preferences, at the end of the day, 
you don't really know until you try it. So I, I really encourage my guests and my staff to say, let me get you a taste of that. Let's talk about it after you have a taste of it and, and encourage a further dialogue because that always amplifies the enjoyment you can have in an experience. It's us taking care of you. Gosh, I, I I love the way you presented that, and I and I I experienced you how you looked after us in Cafe and Sen, and that's how we connected through our, our friend Russell, yeah, uh, and Larissa and, and Larissa uh, that day, uh, and it, it it really impacted, and you you you, I, I use the word you cared, and I don't mean that in the wrong sense. It's just you you made it very comfortable, and you know, not that we were drinking wine in any great sense, but in the sense of just the overall service, and that's what really resonated with me. And that's why I wanted to get you on the show here because other people coming up to say, yeah, this is a great career. It's a great opportunity. It's what you make of it, of course, where your abilities are, how you're prepared to learn. Hard work, hard work, hard work kind of sits a lot underneath that always. And yeah. um, uh, the, 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 your journey to get here and my next question is around networking. So obviously you've been uh, coming from a, a, a across the pond as, as we arrive in a way, and I know uh, if I'm right, your wife is is a doctor or about right, to become yes. a uh, yes. about to become a doctor. So you're you pitch up in Ireland. Uh, what happens next? You're knocking a door. Listen, I know a bit about wine. Give me a job. And, and then how you got into Cathy on Sen? Because I know there's a story there. Do you want to share it? Which I, yeah, I, I I'm aware of. It's not exactly. Uh, there were some bumps in the journey. Um, hospitality is is tricky field to for international visa law. Because it's hard to prove that one nationality can't supply someone that can work in that same role and they should hire outside. Uh, so I met um, the owners of the Mercantile Group over in New York, actually. And they said, you know, this is fantastic. You have a lot of the qualities we're looking for. Would you like to come work for us? I said, absolutely. It happens. My girlfriend is Irish, lives in Dublin. Let's make this work. And it, and to just negotiate the, the law and the visa requirements, also a, an international pandemic at the time, uh, it took a bit of time. It took about a year and a half to, to figure out all the paperwork and to get me over here. Um, but once that happened, yeah, I started at Cafe on July 6th of 2020. That was my first day. Uh, and... And just the length that they went through, or went to rather, to to get me over here was extraordinary. So it, it, it's quite a privilege, I'd say, um, and also very, you know, very good. Now I get to live over here and, and continue. And, and then the networking aspect of that, because obviously, sure. you know, you you networking. What, what do you understand by networking? Because it's different to it's different to because you're meeting new people. All day long, potentially. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the parts of hospitality where you actually don't have to worry too much because you're you're gonna meet someone. That's just the, the law of probability. I mean, I didn't, I I knew nothing of the Mercantile Group before Russell and Michael Breslin happened to sit down at that table. I never even heard of it. Uh, that was it's raw chance, but putting yourself out there, working the floor meeting people constantly, going to tastings, um, going to, to industry meetings, constantly going and pushing how many people you meet, it will happen for you. Now, I feel quite lucky. You know, I feel like some people would say that's leaving it up to luck. I'd say, no, that's 
that's giving myself the best possible opportunity to meet the people that will open doors for you. Putting yourself in scenarios where you are around people that have that capacity or are in that role to hire. Uh, that is that is what networking means in hospitality. Having those certificates opens the doors to those meetings. So gotcha. And I, I, I get you in the room, I suppose, and then it's up to you to kind of shine or, 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 or resonate with, yeah. with, with the person. And I, I always... Uh, I mean, you see, I'm just thinking of the 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 comedies of of like the you know, you know, on TV where people are very polite and the, the clients may not be as polite, and then the food goes in and someone someone might uh, mess no. with the food, you know, the, the funny stuff. But more point of view that like you're in an environment where you're 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 sucking an energy the whole time, good, bad, and indifferent. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you switch on switch off for you? Because you're you're very exposed. Anyone who's whose customer service and physically customer is very exposed. I think that's one of them. That's probably the darker side of the industry. I think if it, for all the benefit you have with networking, it's constantly being around people. The harder side is, is being able to remove yourself and, and turn back to your personal life. Uh, because the job requires you to be personal and, and to be yourself to some extent. And, and then creating that boundary is very difficult, especially for younger people. You know, I, I still struggle at times. Um, the real thing that you need to do is, is find, find something that is uniquely yours. Uh, I use sport for me. When uh, I play softball and baseball here in Ireland with a group of Americans that are also over here as well, that to me has nothing to do with, with work at all. And I use that to completely decompress from my week and and create a hard distinction between work, Ryan, and, and outside of Ryan. I use time with, with my wife, Lena, to, to not answer my phone. When I'm off, I'm off. If someone has an emergency, they can send me an email. But I, at the end of the day, how much of an emergency is this unless I've truly missed something? Um, so that to me is 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 where I struggled early in my career is that I was always at work mentally. I was never away from work. And it's it can be a very unhealthy route to go through. Yeah, and, and it's, it's it's I suppose in, in a lot of jobs it's been able to because you can spend two thirds of your waking day in a working environment in your head. That's right. And that's going to catch up with you. Yeah. I would yeah. also recommend a very comfortable pair of shoes. <laughs> you spend a lot of time on your feet. <laughs> that, 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 that's, a, that's a good. Did you have mentors on the journey uh, from uh, deciding that, that chemistry is lost or that chemistry uh, jobs uh, 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 were, were going to be rooted? What, what mentors helped you and, and what do they, who were they and sure. how did they help you? I've had, I've had a few in my, in my time uh, that have all kind of added a different aspect of it uh, from in my early studies Laura Manick, Scott Carney two master sommeliers based in New York City uh, to really get me to invest in the study and theory of wine um, to my first few wine directors at Bettany Michael uh, Michael Beadle, J Jeff Taylor specifically Jeff Taylor phenomenal wine director um, to get me involved in the storage, the service, all the behind the scenes, the purchasing of wine, the writing of a wine list, the service of wine in a fine dining setting, 
Uh, it's one of my best friends to this day, Dean Firth, uh, who is one of the most talented sommeliers I've ever met in my life. Um, the sheer competition aspect of competing against someone in a friendly sense, but driving, like having someone there to drive you to be better. Um, to, you know, maybe not such positive mentors in, in a way, but also probably someone who has, has shaped my career more than most, Eamon Rocky, my former, former, ugh, former general manager, um, constantly asking me to push the envelope farther, do more, do more. How, how can you be more efficient? How can this drive better? How can the machine work better? Um, has never left my head, I think. If you really want to succeed in that sense, you need to push, push harder and you need those people around you to support you to do that. Even when, you know, you wish they would let off the gas a little bit sometimes. Gotcha. 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 And the, um, what's next for you in a sense of career wise, and not necessarily you're going to, but, but from challenges, you know, how yeah. do you, how do you get is better is the wrong word, but how do you kind of, okay, here's where I need to go. Here's for, where, Food is going to, here's where wine is going to, here's the next five years. Well, I think right now in Ireland um, is is a very exciting time for wine. I think you're seeing palates expand. I think the interest in different places and regions and styles of wine is increasing. The thirst for wine is, is, is palpable. Uh, so I'm really excited by that. Uh, I, I like to see that these small little bottle shops continue to pop up in local neighborhoods. Uh, I, I love that wine lists are becoming more varied away from just Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blanc and a bit of Chardonnay. Uh, that's, that's exciting. So at the moment, continuing to ride that wave and, and seeing like you, you have these direct sample sizes of working, especially a cafe with so many people coming in you frontline direct knowledge to what people are drinking and to what they're talking about down the line. Um, I've talked with my wife quite a bit about this, uh, as an American, I love my sandwiches quite a bit. I think we do sandwiches better than most places in the world. Uh, I would love to have a wine sandwich shop, to be honest. That's, that's the end goal. I like the concept of, of a casual lunch, a quick sandwich and a glass of wine and away you go, maybe a coffee at the end. Uh, I like that casual aspect to it, but that doesn't mean that I can't serve a rotating selection of wine to constantly keep people interested. I think one of the beauties of, of New York City is, is you're never you're spoiled for choice, right? So you can always find a new glass of wine somewhere or a new sandwich. Whereas here, I find that we're still stuck in that rut of a bit of repetition, and and the name on the building may change, but the the offering is fairly stable. Uh, I want to upset that market a little bit. Okay, I like the way you presented that because, like, when you go abroad or go into Greece or you're in Italy and you're up a, up a mountain around a corner, there's always a couple of older lads just having a little glass of wine, sitting yeah. chatting away, and they might have simple olives or something like that. It's not a, it's not a big, it's not a real, it's not a, it's just a really normal, natural uh, uh, experience. I mean, it's not a matter of going out for the buzz of it. It's it's going out to because the food and the glass of wine complement each other, and I think that's that's the dining experience that I can really get around, I get my head around, and something that I derive joy from. I like seeing that. I like taking the spiciness and vegetal tone of of rocket on on a steak sandwich and matching that with a beautiful 
rich, waxy Austrian Gruner Veltliner. I like seeing that combination work out and that only plays out in those sometimes more, more casual experiences. Yeah, it's 11.36 here. I'm thinking of my lunch. I'm not sure that the glass of Gruner Veltliner might, but it, it sounds very attractive. I know what Gruner Veltliner tastes like. It's one of my favorite, actually one of my favorite uh, uh, favorite wines because my 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 uh, two of my kids uh, they they went to Erasmus in Germany oh, where yeah. where the 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 uh, that grape or beside yeah. the region where the, the grape grape was the um, if you didn't do what you do now and you mentioned softball and baseball do I presume you'd be playing for the Mets professional baseball player or what, is there anything you'd say gosh I, you know that'd be kind of uh, cool to do I think uh, I think growing up I always had aspirations of major league baseball you know that was a, that would always have been nice i wouldn't have been playing for the mets i would have been playing for the yankees now so i have to get that on the record okay. but uh, uh no i grew up in in coastal connecticut so right on the water i always had an affinity for for boats and things of that nature there were times i wanted to be in the coast guard like my grandfather um you know i i i think it would have been something maritime related to be honest that's I went to college in Rhode Island, which is the home of the Coast Guard. So, like, I think it would have been something maritime related. I just, I never got around to it. But I'm not so upset with where I ended up. It sounds like you love it. Your energy is just great. The way you, just the passion you talk about. And and, and you translate it so well, depending on who's, I think, who's listening. Just observing, uh, talking to this. And, and uh, two questions before we go. Uh, the one has got to be, you know, Give me, give me the, you know, that simple dinner party, white, red, maybe 20 yeah. bucks, 25 bucks kind of thing, just that you'd say, try this, this, and this. And then yeah. the, the last question is kind of uh, five words that, to describe your career so far. So I'll let you answer whichever you want to answer first. Uh, let's say my career so far, uh, exciting, uh, journey, uh, Respectful, I'd say. Um, brash at times. Um, and optimistic. Love those words. Uh, and then the old dinner party question, one of my favorites. Probably the mo- most commonly asked of me whenever someone hears. <laughs> of course. So I, I, I think I figured that. So uh, of, of course. So I have them. I have them ready. Uh, I always respond with um, it at dinner parties. It's not about if I'm hosting, it's not about me. It's about my guests. So I always answer in that. Uh, and my answer generally is German Rose. It's always a crowd pleaser and everyone has a question about it. So it's a great conversation starter and never clocks in more than 22 euro. For white, white wine is my guilty pleasure. I, I am a, uh, you can always tell a winemaker's ability based on their white wine. As we like to say, there's less to hide, hide behind when making white. So for me, I go to, gosh, that's tough, you know, but I, I got to give it to Italian, Italian whites. Italian whites for me are just always refreshing. Uh, they're always interesting. There's something weird about them. Uh, so, yeah, I go Italian coastal white, maybe uh maybe from Bruzzo, I'd say. 
Yeah, that's for me. And those are always fairly inexpensive as well. The red, now the red, I have uh, a special wine in my heart. I wouldn't say it's it's uh, an everyday wine, but uh, Stu Smith, of Smith Madrone Vineyards at the top of Spring Mountain, he produces some of the most textured, beautiful, nuanced, interesting, and just, I get to put a period on it, like delicious Cabernet you'll ever have. Um, now, when I first heard of him, his, his Cabernet was $25 a bottle. Uh, in the time since, it's now skyrocketed to 180 So it's impressive. Uh, it's impressive wine. If I was going to go for just dinner party wine, I think there is it's hard to beat really quality and... Jeez, that's tough. Uh, yeah, I think it's really hard to beat quality Ribera del Duero red out of Rio, uh, out of Spain. Uh, the great Mencia is just exploding across the market right now. Uh, it's being well produced and again delicious, which is most important to me. Uh, I, I think that word "delicious" most important. It's a lovely way to finish. Uh, yeah. our, our our conversation, Ryan. Listen, I, I I'm really grateful for for you uh, coming coming on on the show. I think what you've shared. Uh, I'm still thinking lunchtime. I'm thinking wine. I'm thinking, <laughs> but my whole energy has changed in the sense of yeah. not that I know an awful lot about it, but the sense is I know what I like and don't like per se. But how you translate it again? So I want to thank you so much for for taking time out of your out of your day uh, to talk with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Career Scoop, brought to you by Elevate Career Advice and Elevate Executive Selection, Dublin and Bermuda. I'm James Fitzsimons, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Bye.